I love you. I love you, Good Shepherd. It is... It feels really good to say that. I do love you, and I know it, if you have never been in a church before, if you're new here, or maybe if you're old as the hills at Good Shepherd, it might sound strange to hear I love you as the very first words out of your new rector's mouth. You're thinking to yourself, you don't even know us yet. How can you possibly love us? Well, that's true. I don't know you yet, and yet I still love you. Because for me, love is not just a feeling. It's not just an exclusive experience between people. No, rather for me, love is a promise. It's a commitment that I stand before you here this morning and make to you as your new rector and as your priest and as your brother in Christ. I love you not because I'm holier than thou or or terribly special, although I imagine some of you will find me to be a bit quirky at times, or that, that you have done anything remarkable to earn my love. No. Rather, I love you because love is of God, and God is love. God loves you. God loves me. And that makes it all about love, right? It's all about love. So as we embark on this next chapter here at the Church of the Good Shepherd in Tequesta, I hope hope that we will act in love, that we will discover in one another the infinite love that God has for all of us. Now, as we start out, I have to tell you about our diocesan convention from a few months ago. There we were gathered down in Boca Raton, a number of us, your delegates, Father Derek was there. We were down there, and our keynote speaker for our diocesan convention was the Bishop of Atlanta, Bishop Wright. Fabulous bishop, fabulous person, brilliant, of course. And and Bishop Wright Diocese of Atlanta, remember, told a brief story about visiting a Baptist church in rural Georgia, right? An Episcopal bishop visiting a rural Baptist church. You imagine that there were some contours and textures of this story that were going to be quite interesting. The bishop told us that he marveled at how focused these Baptists were on a particular thing. They were were focused on baptism, of all things, Imagine that, Baptists being focused on baptism. I don't know why he was marveling at it. I thought that was pretty obvious. But he marveled and recounted how they encouraged baptism throughout the service, how they had an easy way to sign up to be baptized after the service, and how the whole congregation was working in sync toward this baptismal end. He went on. So what is your church's focus He asked us in the audience rhetorically, what is it that we as Episcopalians in your local parishes and schools and special ministries, what is it that we do so clearly that everyone who comes into our presence knows immediately? There was a hushed silence in that room of 250 delegates and clergy as we all pondered what it was that we do so darn well. I was going insane inside, 
because I wanted to just yell out, we feed people. We feed people. We literally have a dining room table in the center of all of our churches. We take literal bread, and we actually take real wine because we're classy like that. And we, we serve it to anyone and everyone who comes in. We spend half of the service setting the table, saying the grace, giving it out, eating it, cleaning it up, saying goodbye. We feed people because we are fed in church. And I sat there in this room with all these people who kind of were scratching their heads and I just wanted to explode. Did I look like I wanted to explode? Whew, got a good poker face, I guess. We feed people really well in the Episcopal Church. It's what we do. It's who we are. It's in our DNA. It's how we live our love of God for each other. We do that around the heavenly table of God's heavenly meal. In this sacramental meal, we are fed by the hands of one another with food that God has provided and transformed for us. And you all know the paramount importance of feeding as you, a good shepherd, do it all the time. Not just in church, but, but you feed people in the food pantry just across the courtyard. You, you, you go down to Riviera Beach and feed people at St. George's Table multiple, I think once or twice a month. You, you gather once a year to pack food for the people of Bondo, Haiti, and food packing for Haiti, and, and many other occasions in which we celebrate with a lot of food. If you missed yesterday's reception, case in point, there were so many delicious things to eat. I think that as your new rector, I've landed in the right spot. <laughs> we live up to the symbolism of the altar in the middle of our churches. And so I couldn't be happier on this second Sunday of Advent, a season, of course, of preparation and staying awake, that this is my first Sunday, and that we get to read Isaiah 40. It's a, it's a famous and phenomenal passage. In part, it says, See, the Lord God comes with might to feed his flock like a shepherd. To feed his flock like a shepherd we come to be fed by the good shepherd of the people, Jesus Christ, as the church of the good shepherd. It's literally in our name, too. The Baptists don't get to have all the fun. But we are not simply fed with calories for physical sustenance, but we are fed with bread that gives eternal life. It's a little bit of a weird thing that we do up here, and we're going to spend a lot of time talking about Eucharist. We don't have time to get into all of that theology today. But what I can tell you is that we are spiritual beings with spiritual needs. Each of us, spiritual beings with spiritual needs. And here at Good Shepherd, we are being recharged spiritually in this Eucharistic feast of food we are also recharged by the word of God proclaimed in the readings. That word which is sung in our hymnody, it is echoed in our prayers. Our spirit is even energized by God's spirit in the silence. In the silence. And we are supported in love by the siblings 
in Christ who sit in front and behind and next to us. Just like a, a good Thanksgiving meal. Thanksgiving, by, by the way, is like my favorite holiday. I mean, I like all the churchy holidays too, but in terms of holiday, holiday, Thanksgiving for me. Food, food, food. In a Thanksgiving meal where we're surrounded by family and friends, and, and you feel that warmth and that energy, the spiritual energy of Jesus' meal is palpable here and now. So job number one is to be fed. It is to gather, whether here or at five o'clock on the green over there, or virtually online if you're joining us there, or in a small group, however it is to be gathered and fed, and it is to have our spirit nourished. But job number one is not the end of our work, because job number two is intimately and intricately related to job number one. In fact, I would say that unless we are doing job number two, which I'm about to tell you, job number one becomes kind of meaningless. In the Eucharistic feast, we become what we eat. We are feasting on the body of Christ in order to become the body of Christ. We are becoming Jesus' very body in this meal so that we who are fed might go into the world and feed others. We are fed so that we might feed others. And, and, and you might be saying, well, where shall we do this? Well, Isaiah has the answer for us. We are to do this in the parched deserts, in the parched deserts that are hungry for God's sustenance. In the wilderness, Isaiah and John the Baptist cry, prepare the way of the Lord. In the wilderness, the voice that cries out declares that the valleys are being lifted up, the mountains made low, uneven ground is leveled, rough places smoothed out. This, my friends, is not just rhetorical poetry from Isaiah, but this is our operational blueprint. This is our manual of instruction. It's not just happy kind of tropes. It's what we're supposed to do and where we're supposed to do it. I, I, I guarantee, you'll no doubt feel the altitude difference between this sanctuary of peace in which we find ourselves and after you step out of those doors, the chaotic ups and downs of modern life. There's a disparity between the peace of here and the chaos of there. You will see in your daily and weekly walk the crooked path that so many walk every day. These are the places which need us the, the most. Where, where others are, are, are walking not in straight lines, not walking according to a plan, but, but are aimlessly walking, lost, searching for meaning and for purpose. And the question to us is, will you walk with them? Will you stand at the edge of the deep valley, as Isaiah describes it? Will you walk in someone else's shoes? Will you feel the roughness of the path upon which they walk? It's a wilderness out there. It's a wilderness, and of course we would rather stay here and huddle together and never leave this sanctuary of peace, and yet God calls us to go out, go out into the wilderness and not to be afraid out there, even though it's all sorts of topsy-turvy 
Because you have been fed in here. You have been given everything you need to sustain you as you go out there without fear. Because there's someone out there who needs to be fed too. And you're the one to feed them. And I'm the one to feed them. And together, together we are the body of Christ feeding the world. Now, years ago, you thought I was done. No. <laughs> I got a lot to say on the first go. Maybe next time I'll, I'll keep it at a, at a Father Derek length. But, but in this first one, we're going to go again. So it's a two-for-one sale. Years ago, when I was a pretty new priest, I've, I've been a priest ten and a half years, I got a cold call in the office. A cold call is just a call from someone I don't know. Cold call. And it was a younger man on the other end who had heard about us somehow. He said that his car needed to be repaired, but that he and his family didn't have enough money to fix the car and to keep staying in the motel where they were temporarily lodging down in Lantana. Lantana's about, what, 20 minutes, 30 minutes south of here on 95. Thankfully, I knew a good car mechanic just down the street in Palm Beach Gardens, I told the man about it and said that the church would be happy to cover the night in the motel for he and his family. A few hours later, an older car pulls into our parking lot at the church and out steps this 20-something-year-old man. And along with him is this pregnant wife holding a a baby girl, just uh, under one year old, and a small boy who's maybe four or five years old gets out. I explained to him where the mechanic was, but seeing as though it was already quite late in the day, in fact, it was probably around this time of year, December, so the sun went down early, uh, I said, the shop is just down the street, and the church is happy to put you up for a night in the motel using the clergy discretionary fund. But but he said, how are we going to get back to the motel that's 20 to 25 minutes away? He innocently inquired. Right. I thought. I hadn't quite thought that part through. Well, I naively responded, I suppose I could give you a ride back down to Lantana after we drop off the car. Not quite realizing what I was committing myself to in that particular moment. I followed them to the mechanics in my relatively brand new Volvo. It's older now, but it was relatively brand new, sedan Volvo, Uh, to the car shop, and the man afterwards got in the front seat, the mom and the son in the back, the baby, we moved the car seat over and strapped her into the car seat. And we began our journey in the darkness of that December night. Now, I consider myself a a fairly decent listener. I I try to listen as closely as I can, and after a lull in the conversation, uh, I, I heard in the back that the little boy was tugging on the mom's sleeve, whispering, Mom, I'm, I'm hungry. It was dinner time after all, and I, I piped right in, well, we could grab some dinner on the way down, thinking that we could stop somewhere and go into a restaurant and sit down and have a, a civilized dinner. That would be fantastic, the dad replied. Let's just do a McDonald's drive through Now, what could go wrong with a McDonald's drive through and a five-year-old? I mean, we've all been there a thousand times, I think. And besides... I mean, you have the burgers and the fries, and and then you've got the ketchup being passed around my brand new Volvo. 
and it's light beige carpet in the bottom. And then mom takes a very full, extra large Coca-Cola and she rips the lid off and hands it to the five-year-old who's holding it with both hands as the car is stopping and starting on 95 in traffic. I must have had a bewildered and wild look in my eye that she saw through the rearview mirror because she quickly explained, oh, he doesn't like to drink from straws very much. I don't think it spilled. It was okay. But I was... It was a new car. Come on. I mean, who wants a Coke all over your new car? Anyway, we made it to Lantana eventually. It took us... We hit a lot of traffic. And that Super 8 motel that we pulled up into that they were staying at, it was was like something out of a horror movie, to be honest. There were missing lights. It was a a post-apocalyptic parking lot. I parked the car under the dimness of those lights and went to the office to pay for the night while the family got unpacked. When I returned, the little baby girl was still in her car seat, now taken out of the car, sitting on the sidewalk in front of the room. As I looked down, she had these huge eyes wide in the dark night, looking up at me, glowing almost under those harsh street lights that illumined her face. As I stood captivated, looking into her eyes, the man and his wife walked out. Thank you so much, they chimed in, emerging from the room. We don't know what we would have done without you, they said. And with that, we said goodnight. My memories are a bit vague after that. I I, I imagine I may have seen them another handful of times, helping them get their car back in their own possession. Back and forth, I went on 95 a few times. But, but these people never became parishioners at St. Mark's. They never joined us for a church service. I didn't keep in touch with them. They kind of faded out of my life. I don't know where they ended up living. And I bet that little boy who was five at the time is probably in middle school today, somewhere unknown, living a life I have no access to. But in that moment... But in that moment, I believe that I was doing what countless others have done for me on my path. I was feeding God's people. Love in action. Here's the thing about Advent, these couple of weeks before Christmas. When you walk the rough path, when you serpentine your way down the road, when you drive I-95 with a brand new car full of children and car seats and ketchup and Coca-Cola, it turns out you're actually changed. Things are put in the right perspective. Beige carpet does not matter. Beige carpet doesn't matter in those moments. And it also doesn't matter if they're going to become parishioners at Good Shepherd Episcopal Church in DeQuesta. That doesn't matter. I was in the wilderness that year. That was my wilderness that year. John the Baptist prepares the way not by sticking with routine as usual or by staying out of the troubled places, but by being immersed into the thick of it. Immersed. A Super 8 motel in a post-apocalyptic lantana. A family teetering on the brink. Little resources that offer little hope. And then that little baby girl, sitting in a car seat under fluorescent lights, smiling up at me with big, bright eyes. 
Could this be the Christ child? Has God, has God come near to me in this moment? Not to give me what I want, not to fix the problems for me, not even to give me peace of mind that this family was going to be okay, but to whisper in my ear in that moment, I'm not done. God says, I'm not done with this world. I haven't left. I haven't abandoned you. I'm right here. I'm right here in the middle of nowhere with my people, the last, the least, the lost, and the little children. Meet me here, God says. Meet me here in the curve of life, in that rough patch, in the depth of the valley where your heart breaks. Because here, here I'm about to do something incredible. Amen.